You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome back to The Mumbrella Cast, the first for 2021. I'm Damien Francis. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Deputy Managing Editor Brittany Rigby. Hello. And reporter Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in The Mumbrella Cast, I'll be talking to Starcom CEO Nick Keenan about a change of pace. You, you, you sit back and you reflect on you know, uh, what you want to do next. And for me, it was getting back to consultancy. Lessons learned on the client side. What are the three to four to five things that really matter that you're going to measure um, in terms of what you're doing to, uh, to make that um, as simple and as efficient as possible when you're talking to the C-suite? And Starcom's transformation progress. We certainly feel that we've got the best position now in order to deliver group marketing services with People Power Growth. But let's kick off with this week's topics. The industry gets its first look at the ACCC's Digital Ad Services Inquiry, and Adland starts the year with agency leaders making moves. Today, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission released a 222-page interim report on its Digital Advertising Services Inquiry. The inquiry began over a year ago and is placing advertiser ad servers, demand-side platforms, supply-side platforms, and publisher ad servers under the microscope. It is running alongside an additional five-year inquiry into the digital platforms. Britt, you covered the report from Umbrella. Can you give us a brief rundown? Yeah, so lots of ACCC and Google and Facebook news this week. So this inquiry, it's important to note out, is very separate, obviously, from the inquiry that led to the news media bargaining code and the very heated debate that's playing out there. So this one came about because the ACCC, as part of that first inquiry, had a few areas of of concerns and the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, then directed them to undertake these two additional inquiries. So this one focuses on digital display ads and the ACCC notes that digital ad spend was $9.1 billion last financial year and then digital display ads made up $3.4 billion of that. So I guess what the ACCC is worried about is that the ad tech supply chain matters because if advertisers are paying too much for digital ads, they're going to pass that on to consumers. So in that sense, competition is important. And equally, if publishers aren't getting their fair share of revenue throughout that process, then that's going to impact the content that consumers are viewing from publishers. So it's interesting. There's a lot of grey areas. That's a lot. There's a lot of questions that are still to be answered, and they are seeking submissions on a lot of those questions. As you touched on, this is just the interim report. The final report will be handed down in August. I found it interesting that ad agencies and holding groups were mentioned. So when this first was announced, this inquiry, there was a lot of chatter about whether or not it would uncover kind of the murkiness of rebates and all of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes at ad agencies. And interestingly, the report has said that initially it's not too concerned and that it thinks that a lot of those potential issues can be mitigated by advertisers basically doing their due diligence. So it does dive into rebates and discounts and incentives, but they're not thinking that regulatory action needs to be taken just yet on that kind of thing. And the full findings won't be released till August, so perhaps they will dive a bit deeper into that when we get to it. But uh, 
Starting off with Google, have they responded yet, Britt? Has there been any comment from the tech giant thus far? Not yet. So there's definitely a comment coming. Of course, Google was really at the centre of this report. The ACCC is very concerned about the level of control that Google has in this space. Essentially, they have dominance at every single stage of this ad tech supply chain. And the question to answer is essentially, does that mean that competition is being restricted? I would say that I'm a little bit, you know, sympathetic to to Google this week. I know that managing director Mel Silva gave birth very soon thereafter giving testimony to the Senate committee last Friday. So, look, I'm not sure if that will impact a comment or, or lack thereof, but I've been told that one's on the way. And you've spoken to a few people in the industry as well on your initial research. What did they have to say? Yeah, so comments still definitely coming through from a few big players in the industry. I was particularly interested to hear what media buyers think of this. I mean, they're more across this process than anyone else is. You know, do they think Google has too much power? What have they noticed when they're doing their jobs day to day? So Chris Walton, who's the managing director of Nun Media, he said that based on the concentration of dollars that Google has and their dominance over both the buy and sell sides of media, he thinks the ACCC's concerns are well-placed. But then in contrast, Ben Shepard, who is Thinkabell's general manager of media, has been quite vocal throughout about how not only, you know, this, this report particularly, obviously, but the code that we were talking about earlier is really flawed. And he said that basically Google's built a successful business and he believes it's being punished for that. Many years after their acquisitions and movements had been greenlit by government authorities. So he said, and I quote, at some point, we need to look at whether they're simply better at building a modern commercial and technology business than our local incumbents, rather than it being some sort of nefarious anti-competitive conspiracy. So a few different opinions there some still coming in, but I'll be very interested to see what, you know, all of the players say in the coming days. And of course, you mentioned in there, the government, we've been speaking about Google a lot, but let's turn the tables a little bit and have a look at the government. Recently, Josh Frydenberg was quoted as saying, and this as well was more in terms of the news media bargaining code than anything else, but it it applies to everything we've been looking at uh, recently. And he was quoted as saying, We need to ensure our regulatory frameworks keep pace with the changes being driven by digital platforms. What have you heard in terms of how the industries perceive the government's handling of this in the news media bargaining code? Look, I think that it is a perfect example of what people say about the law generally, which is that the the law is very slow and that it's always playing catch up with where different industries, different issues are at, and it never quite gets there. It can never quite keep pace. And so I think like Ben Shepard said, you know, we were just talking about what he thinks. It feels like this is this is trying very hard to catch up with the speed and pace of big companies like Google and Facebook. And, you know, maybe it's always going to be clunky to an extent, but it feels like the the tools that are being wielded here are really clunky. It's a tough spot for the government to be in now, especially that Google has said that if the code goes through, they will withdraw from the Australian market, their search engine function, because, you know, it's kind of like a hostage situation, right? Like the government has also said, like, we're not caving to threats and is treating it like it's a hostage situation. Google and Facebook are acting like 
they don't have anything to lose. So take it or leave it. You want us here or you don't, and you want the benefit that we provide or you don't. It's, it's messy and it's unfortunate because I think ultimately, and I would hope ultimately, that there's some kind of middle ground where both the publishers and the giants are kind of happy because, you know, if Google leaves, the publishers aren't getting the, the traffic, the publishers aren't getting the benefit that those platforms give them. But equally, you know, Google's pulling out of, you know, not necessarily its most important market or its second most important market, but, you know, a big enough market for it to take a hit on revenue. So, look, we'll see what happens and whether or not actual negotiations occur as opposed to just this is what we want and take it or leave it. Much more to come in the following months for sure. But next, we're going to take a look at the major people moves being made in the industry. The last week has seen three agency leaders announce moves. Ogilvy CEO David Fox was promoted to CEO of the Middle East and Africa. Colenso BBDO Managing Director Scott Coldham announced he would be moving on from the agency and taking the role of CMO with tech company Whopperound and menswear brand As You Were, while one of the founding trios of the Monkees, Justin Drape, announced he would be leaving the agency. Zoe, promotion or sideways step for David Fox? Let's start with him. Can I say it's like a diagonal step up and also to the side? I mean... David Fox has been CEO of Ogilvy for about six years. He's also had um, a transformational role within the group for another two. And it wouldn't surprise me if for him he just decided it was time for him to take on a new challenge and a new role within WPP. Obviously, the ongoing takeover bid negotiation between WPP and WPP AUNZ might have played a role in this, being able to help him step up outside of the Australia bubble and into uh, the wider group. But the timing of this is really interesting and the context behind it as well. I mean, we know after Mike Conaghan's departure, there were a number of local WPP execs who had been with the business for a long time that put their hands up for the gig. And when Jens Monsees was appointed to that CEO role, there were rumblings in market that there were people who were not particularly impressed by being overlooked for that role. Uh, David Fox also follows Kieran Moore's departure last year, John Stedman's retirement as well. So there is a lot of change happening in the leadership of that group. And I think also with the progress of this takeover bid, we're going to see a lot more change within the leaders of WPP AUNZ. So it's an interesting time for the group to this to take for this to take place. And it's also an interesting time for Ogilvy itself. I mean, they their biggest client, I think that one of the most prominent clients here in Australia is KFC. They've been working on that campaign, which has the mixture of slogans, um, bucket, did someone say KFC? for a number of years and it's such a massive campaign you see it everywhere in Australia throughout the whole year but on a on a global level some of their biggest clients are Coca-Cola which we now know is under a global review of its agency roster and globally American Express just moved their creative work from Ogilvy to Dentsu so it's an interesting time for the agency as well 
So good for them that they're keeping David Fox in the family, though, I, I guess, even though he's moving a fair way from Australia. But let's look at the local role now that's been left vacant. Who is in contention for this role? Have you heard any rumblings in the background? Well, when they announced his departure, they did say they were doing an internal search to fill the role, which is interesting to me because Ogilvy actually has three managing directors in Australia. There's Michelle Holland, who's been there since 2009, Sally Kissane, who started with Ogilvy in New York in 1996, and Gavin McMillan, who's been with them since 2012. So three managing directors who all have a very long tenure with the agency and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they're looking for their next step up as well. And then, you know, it's never not unheard of for a chief strategy officer to take the CEO gig as well. There's Toby Harrison and also the head of experience and technology, Jason Davies. So there's a lot of names just within that Ogilvy pool that could step up to this role. And even beyond that within WPP, I mean, we've seen a lot of agency leaders move around and some come back. I mean, John Guttridge was overseas and came back to do the Wonderman-Thompson merger and has finally stepped away. Same with John Burt, who's been in the WPP family for a long time and is now with VML Weiner. So there's a lot of re- like a lot of talent and a lot of resources they can pull on within the group. Now let's look quickly across the pond to Scott Coldham. He became the public face of Colenso BBEO uh, with Nick Worthington, of course, when Nick Garrett moved from Colenso to Cleminger, Melbourne. Uh, he's now taking on two CMO, CMO roles in different industries. Was this a bit of a surprise move? I think it was and it wasn't. I mean, Colenso is the home to a number of very prolific people in marketing and advertising in Australia and New Zealand. I mean, you've got Nick Garrett, who is there. Um, it's also one of the origins of Brent Smart, who's the CMO of IAG. And it also, it's not overly surprising to see an agency person take a break, as particularly when they've been in such impressive market-leading agency for such a long time, to take a break, do something different, go on to the client side. And it actually, I quite like seeing agency people go to client side I think it creates I think sometimes it leads to work that's a lot braver and a lot more challenging to the status quo so and even though these are you know two smaller brands it's not like he's taken on two CMO roles with massive massive businesses but I'm very interested to see what where he goes from here. And finally let's move on to the rather large news that we recently got, uh, which is Justin Drape, one of the founding members of the Monkees. And of course, the Monkees has been a model of creative excellence in the local market and internationally renowned as well. Was it really a surprise to see him depart the agency now? I want to say no. And that's because it's kind of the pattern you see when people sell their agencies and then the earnout period is over and then they decide to move on. I mean, Justin Drape, Mark Green, Scott Now founded the Monkees, sold it to Accenture Interactive in 2017 for a reported $63 million. And so 2017 to 2021, it has almost been exactly four years. Surely that earnout period is over. And I think the first indicator of that was in 2019, they all took on new roles within Accenture in addition to their roles at the Monkeys. So 
um, Scott and Justin were co-chief creative officers at Accenture Interactive and Green became Accenture Interactive's lead in Australia and New Zealand. And yeah, like it is, it isn't surprising because it is just a very common pattern. And how's the perception of the monkeys changed in markets since Accenture Interactive acquired it? Well, I think the key part of this partnership is that it opens doors for both the monkeys and Accenture to gain access to clients that they didn't previously have access to. So, for example, Accenture now has access to Telstra through the monkeys, which is one of their biggest clients. And while we're seeing a shift in this industry of a lot of agencies now sort of relabeling themselves as creative consultants and fixing your business problems with creative solutions, I think this that relationship between the monkeys and Accenture definitely puts them ahead in that trend that we're seeing in market. And they definitely have a lot of eyes on them because you, I, the work that happens between them, I think a lot of it is sort of behind the scenes work with brands. It's not those beautiful TVCs that we've seen the monkeys put out over their entire tenure. So I think a lot of people are very curious about what goes on behind closed doors and I know I'm definitely am as well. I guess my my thing would be of all the agency takeovers this has probably been one of the more successful examples in that the the clients they've got are, are still great, the work is still revered, it may not be as edgy as it once was, but it's still good. The award wins are still quite strong. Um, I think there's a lot of assumptions that a consultancy is going to come in and smother the place. But in this case, it's actually almost been the opposite uh, of that. Um, and potentially that's because Mark Green is, you know, one of the, the honchos at, at Accenture Interactive now. Coming up next, iQuiz Starcom CEO Nick Keenan on the business. Our guest today on the Mumbrella Cast is Starcom CEO Nick Keenan. Nick, welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Yeah, thanks, uh, Damien. Uh, pleasure to be here. Start of the year, we're, we're very early on. You're still working from home, as am I, as I think most of the industry still is. Tell me, Nick, uh, you joined at a quite an interesting time coming back to agency land as the CEO of Starcom sort of uh, towards the beginning of, of the hot mess that was 2020. Uh, what sparked that return and how have you felt about it so far? Yeah, yeah it was an interesting time to start. Um, I don't think um, there's many on the, on the, that'll have on their, their career that you, your first week in a role, um, and no matter what role that would, it would um, what that was, but in my case, CEO of, of Starcom, and four days in, you you you've got everyone working from home, including yourself. So it was an interesting time. I think um, the only uh, you know key thing to remember from that time um, was that look, everyone was in the same boat in terms of working from home. Um, the, the just the main challenge was to getting to know uh, uh, the people within uh, the business. Um, remote and and doing that um, remotely, uh, so that that was the core challenge. But outside of that, everybody was in you know the same boat. So there was there was comfort, I think, in that you know we're all in uh, virgin territory and um, and you know navigating our way through the challenge of of a, of a COVID world. And uh, and I think we're you know we're all still doing that. I think we've got good muscle memory from last year 
that carries over to this year in, in terms of how we manage our productivity and collaboration and getting people working uh, in a productive way. And I think we've certainly, um, you know, learned how to do that last year. All, all categories, all industries, I think all businesses have, have really shown um, a terrific level of, you know, innovation um, in and and use the best of technology to get that done. So um, that was certainly, um, you know, uh, we're all had a, had a, uh, had a similar challenge and um, and yes, getting to know people in a funny way, um, they're working remotely and doing upteenth, you know, amounts of video calls and trying to get to know key leadership teams and just more broadly all staff. Um, there's an intimacy with video calls that um, it's pretty intense. I think that we sort of, you know, particularly one-to-one -one calls, you can see all the visual cues as, as long as you're on video. So that in a funny way, um, I think sped up getting to know people. Um, so what looked like a um, was going to be a real difficulty, actually, um, I got to know the Starcom family and publicists very quickly because um, we're in a, what is a very intimate setting. You know, you're in people's living rooms, you're in their kitchens, you're, you've got their kids running past, their pets, you know, Absolutely. which is kind of cool. Absolutely. Um, if we could go back e even a little bit before that, because obviously it didn't just happen and, and straight away you're in at Starcom. Usually we're talking about people have gone from agency into brand. What uh, spurred you on to come back to agency land and take up this CEO role? How did that all happen? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I had six years client side, um, one within the Crown Network and the other one within Craveable Brands. Um, you know, so big operations, big intensive businesses. Um, the crown side of things was all within that sort of, um, in that digital landscape. So we were, you know, we're launching di digitally led businesses and, and, and well, digitally only businesses. They were, um, they were all in that online wagering space. Uh, one was crown bet. Uh, uh, and then I was the project lead on founding um, of uh, the founding and launch of draft stars, which was a daily fantasy sports um, uh uh, waging operation, which, um, you know, we're very proud of. We're very proud of both those brands. And um, it was, that that was, you know, an amazing client experience to go uh, in as commercial director, uh, get to work with a lot of risk capital, um, invest in brand new operations and um, and go into, you know, the category of, of online waging, which, you know, probably still to this day, I think leads the way in terms of, you know, how good they are at uh, ECRM and making sure that they, develop a database and keep them active and uh, and get their product and service uh, constantly in a highly iterative and incredibly competitive cycle um, to, to stay ahead. So um, you know, you're at the forefront of technology, at the forefront of all the uh, digital marketing practices, you're at the forefront of all the MarTech that you um, that is available. Um, and I think them, I think the, I think the wagering category, along with you know uh, online banking, probably are the two leaders um, in that area, certainly from from what I've seen. And then into QSR, which um, you know had some terrific transferable skills in terms of the digital space. We were we were um, we had a significant e-com platform with delivery taking off. We had aggregators like Uber Eats that had just entered the market. So there was a lot of of that online technical experience that I could bring over to what is the traditional fast food or quick service restaurant um, category. Um, again, and of course, that was CEO of Red Rooster, wasn't it? That was CEO of Red Rooster. Um, you know, and, you, and you, you, you're working in a half a billion dollar turnover business. Um, and, you know, you've got 360 plus restaurants. You've got the fourth largest drive-through network in the country. You've got 7,000 frontline staff. Um, 
and uh, you know, and you've got key distribution channels for you, for you for your product to get that you know get that uh, wonderful food in the hand of the consumer as quickly as possible. So you're on that. Um, we're on that sort of juggernaut of convenience, which look drive-throughs. You know, in the 70s and 80s, certainly. Um, was the first iteration of of absolute convenience um, of being able to get in a car and you know in in between two and two and a half minutes um, you know uh, from your from your order at the speaker box to the to the window you've you've got the uh, the bag of food in your hand so um, online took that convenience as the next transformative cycle um, in that category so it was a lot of fun going in as CEO of that operation as, as that was really taking shape. And I'm, um, you know, very proud of the work that, um, that we did there, but I guess to answer your question, why come back to agency? And, um, they were two big jobs, which, um, both of those, uh, businesses, we, you know, we set them up and, um, and then we, um, participated in a lot of M and A activity and we sold those businesses. So, um, once uh, Craveable was sold and of, of which Red Rooster is about 70% uh, of that business, you know, and once that was sold, um, you know, you, 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 you sit back and you reflect on, you know, uh, what you want to do next. And for me, it was getting back to consultancy. And um, I'd had the intensity of six years on, you know, the, that sort of client side, which takes up um, huge amounts of time. You're seven days a week. It's not to say the consultancy isn't like that. But when you're getting six flights a week flying around the country for Red Rooster and, and you get and you build a brand and a business back up and you get all the menu strategies implemented and you you secure its path and its future. You you sort of you 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 take a breath and you take a point of reflection on what um, what do you really want to do beyond that? Do you want to go down client side again and something I might look at one day again? But right now, for the next you know three to five years, it's um, consultancy back in agency land and um, and I love it. So flying around the country uh, testing all the drive throughs, Yannick. Absolutely, making sure the operations uh, were you know. Um, we're, we're, we're bang on and, 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 you know, you, you met, you meet some just wonderful entrepreneurial people who, uh, you know, have set up their own business and bought into a franchise and they're terrific, terrific people. And I'll, I, I miss that. Um, you know, I miss working with, uh, just, um, such innovative, um, you know, family led businesses and, um, and that was really cool. So, but it is, it's taxing, um, you know, on, time family and and spend away so when you know you go through a transaction event when that is sold um and then you sit there with a new owner uh you do reflect and you do question do i want to go through that whole years of process again um getting to know the way that they want to work or is it just time to do a transition and, and move to something that um my, my next chapter and, and coming back to consultancy and the media landscape was something I always wanted to get back to. And, and I certainly looked at it um, over when I was in the six years client side thinking, you know, there's just so many things that they could be doing. There's so many transformative pieces that I've just felt were missing. And it just looked like so much low hanging fruit on the tree for me in terms of reshaping the business model and building the agency, of the future. So that, that, that really attracted me back to this once I had time to just take a step after um, the red rooster CEO role and go, yeah, you know, maybe it's time to go back to that and see see what impact I can have. I'm going to talk to you about the transformation of, of Starcom and what you've been doing soon. But just before we do that, I'd love to chat to you a bit about uh, those CEO roles you've had and, and how they relate to the role you've got now. But more broadly speaking as well, how it relates to brands 
working with agencies themselves. Usually we're talking to people who have been CMOs or, or head of marketing and they've gone agency side. You're quite different in that you've had CEO roles and, and that's quite unique. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've, I've, I think I've heard you say before that, um, you know, and like you've just alluded to, the, the C-suite, that the CEOs at, at brands are intensely busy uh, at the moment and it's a little bit different uh, in agency side, not to say they're not working hard, it's, it's work in a different manner. But how has that transformed or changed the way that you now, agency side, uh, are looking to work with, with clients and the people working inside of clients? It's the single uh, largest influence I have in terms of the way I'm shaping uh, the agency with the team and the product and service we provide. Because going client side for six years, what you, and, and I don't know, I guess from consultancy, I think we look sometimes into our clients' businesses when you don't have that experience and you think they're innately more organized than, than maybe we are because, you know, they have a successful product. They have a business that um, is selling something very tangible, be it service, be it product, be it combination of both. And I think you, you have a, when that veil is lifted, when you go client side, you are shocked at how silo businesses can be. Even digitally led businesses that only have a digital front door via the app right, in wagering, and you think, oh, well, it just must be, they must be the market leaders internally in workflow management practices. And then you find that it's more siloed than, than you could have imagined. And, um, they're, and if they're growing quickly, then they've got growing pains where that silo gets more and more um, pronounced and exaggerated and difficult to manage. And, and what happens is there's, there's just business cycles that they go through where uh, it will it will balloon out into more and more so, and then it'll go through a massive restructure, you know, um, which are then make them innately more efficient. And because they're, uh, a, you know, a client and its leadership team can actually affect that change very quickly. Uh, if they're not in, you know, um, larger group structures, then, um, then you, you get to experience a, uh, a, an incredible level of efficiency in what is structural re-engineering. And, and so I've, I've taken that experience and participated in that, um, and learnt an incredible amount um, so that you can then work with, when you're working with clients as a consultant from this side, you're looking at going, well, where do we play in the ecosystem? Where's our influence on the campaign to campaign decision-making from a marketing perspective? But also, what are the three to four to five things that really matter that you're going to measure um, in terms of what you're doing to, uh, to make that um, as simple and as efficient as possible when you're talking to the C-suite so that they can understand, A, what you're doing, which is the biggest problem, um, and the impact that you're making, and B, how you can become part of um, assisting their, their growth strategy. So um, that, that is one um, you know, key area of experience that I, I hold very dear going client side, is just seeing how inefficient and how siloed it can be and equally, how quickly it can be transformed and turned around, um, and going through an experience of transformation like that, then you you get the you 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 get to be able to recognise um, within your client base who at what different stage they're at. You know, are they are they at a stage where they need to go through that, um, or if they come off the back of it and they're incredibly well set up and. Um, and then you know you're in a you're in a you're you're in a different you're in a different conversation and you're in a different ecosystem where you're applying your service. So, um, look, number one influence in terms of um, the way mm. we go about it because um, they're always starved for resources. They are always starved for time. It's incredible the amount of meetings and things that you know 
Um, and as much as they want to make it efficient as, and, 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 as, as, and as demanding how much focus there is on, on, on getting that right, uh, they are absolutely beholden to, you know, the day-to-day um, performance and that is tracked within an nth degree. So, um, you know, we need to we need to be able to fit in with that and and we need to be, you know, making sure that what we do is understood first and foremost and the value is, is, is communicated, but, but equally, where are we changing our business model uh, to suit their growth strategies and where they're going? So speaking about opportunities, Nick, and what agencies do here, I'd love to know what part agencies have to play in perhaps breaking down those silos of the clients. You mentioned uh, different clients at different stages. Is there a place for agencies to help them break down those silos or is it not really part of their remit or purpose? How do you see that play out? Well, you, look, so the first answer to that question is in terms of, yes, there's a significant amount of influence that we can have to, to a degree, but we do have to stay on our lane. So you, 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 and you have to recognise what stage of, um, what stage is your client at in terms of if they're in a full transformative piece where they're looking at integrating, you know, their various different disciplines from operations to marketing to legal to, you know, um, commercial, like how, how is that all communicating? And you've got to, you know, through your conversations and, and, and your, your knowledge of the client, you've got to work out, you know, where they're at because you certainly don't want to be in there agitating for, um, you know, change that is A, unnecessary or B, is something that, look, hey, thanks very much, but we're concentrated on, on that and we just need you to do your job. So you, you need to know where you sit in the ecosystem and where in the agency village what your role is. Um, on the second part of that, absolutely, the business model and our remuneration structures is 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 where agencies and um, and and where we have a is probably the main influence and the, and the key area that we can assist in their growth strategies because ultimately, um, if you look at what CMOs in a recovering COVID world are looking at, they've got a they've got a watch cost. In fact, I think from recent surveys that I've seen, the number one thing that they're focused on in 2021 is is, is cost reduction without losing the quality of you know the marketing comms and, and, and whether it be creative media and, and all the various different, um, you know, uh, components to uh, good uh, marketing communications. Um, they've, got to, they've got to keep the quality, but they've got to consolidate and they've got to cut cost. That, that's, that's their number one priority at the moment. So in that environment where we um, play a key role is how do we, um, how do we remunerate ourselves and bring the specialisms that come into so that that come in to um, do the work? So there's much more of a needs-based analysis where I, what I, what we call dynamic scaling of specialisms. You're bringing the specialist in and out um, based on the work that and the demand of work that's coming in. So that that's a key part to it. What is the day-to-day operational um, you know continuity of business that you're offering, right? So that's the other part. What is something that they pay for on a regular monthly, week in, week out basis? And then, then how flexible is that model in terms of um, being, uh, being, you know, proactive in, in adjusting and changing to seeing what your clients' teams are doing and how they're shaping, um, you know, their marketing teams. And if you look at those and focus on those three things, there's a, there's a lot of influence in there and there's a lot that we can do to assist, um, you know, particularly marketing teams and CMOs um, achieve the growth strategies that they uh, they need to implement and um, that impacts their marketing. Um, 
whether it's commercial, whether it's led by the CEO or a combination collectively in the, in the really good client operations where you, you, you have a collective output from commercial marketing uh, and finance, um, where they're all working really well together. Um, and it's really consistent in terms of what they're trying to achieve in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, the day-to-day uh, output of their product and service to the, you know, the more innovative that 10 to 20% that they're trying to nudge uh, their brand and, and, and grow their business. So um, when that's clear, it, it's certainly a lot easier to, to work with the particularly the marketing team. Sometimes that can be disjointed. As I mentioned earlier, some clients can be, um, you know, as I've seen firsthand can be really siloed and, um, and I've seen them go through a process where they fix that. So, you've got a bit of a fluid environment you've got to play within, but um, you know, from the meetings that we have from the, the talent that you've got, you've, you've got to make sure that a, you've got a cross-functionally trained team that can recognize and knows how to ask the right questions. Um, and that we've got a state of, of, of we, we recognize we're in a bit of a state of flux with our client that we're constantly looking for to, to be part of the change that they're implementing. So that's a really good segue then into Starcom itself. I'd love to get your assessment of Starcom prior to you joining. You know, what did you see in in the agency uh, that A, made you want to join, but B, you thought you could uh, change and improve or or shift somewhat? Uh, And obviously, you've also announced the people powered growth uh, framework uh, as well. So perhaps if you could also tell us a bit about uh, how that came about and uh, where that's at now. Yeah. Okay. So the first part of that question, which is, you know, why Starcom, I guess, and, and publicists? Well, first and foremost, um, you know, it's a, I always have fond memories of going up against the Starcom business when I was back in, you know, the WPP days and, and um, you know, so it's a, it's a recognizable brand and, you know, it was a good solid media agency. So it had a good solid base. It's got a really enviable client list. I mean, we've got such wonderful clients. So when you look at those two things, you go, okay, that's a fantastic platform to grow, right? Um, it doesn't matter what, people's perceptions are in the market or whether it's, you know, more of the analog media agency, um, you're always going to have um, people make judgments from the sidelines. Um, and, and certainly my perception was great um, media agency brand, really well known and fantastic client list. And from what I could see on the outer, looks like some really good staff, you know, in, in, in terms of in, um, in, in some of the leadership positions. So they're obviously doing something right to, to have, uh, you know, P&G. There's obviously doing something right to have FCA. You're obviously doing something right to have Metcash, Subaru, um, you know, uh, the, these terrific, um, you know, businesses like Snooze, Mitre 10, IGA in that Metcash group. So you've got a great client list. And then the third thing looking at is it's in um, a terrific group structure in terms of the publicist network, um, which has some of, the, you know, the best um, sort of MarTech uh, some of the best talent um, and a collection of, uh, of agencies, whether it's, um, um, you know, uh, other media agencies that you, you've got in the, in, the, in the group where you can benchmark what you're doing um, and or whether it's getting into the more technical and, um, you know, technology space with businesses like Sapient. Um, you know, everything from uh, technology like Epsilon, which is, which is owned by the publicist group, uh, you've got a wonderful set of, um, you've got a terrific toolbox, right? So you've got an established brand, you've got great clients, you've got a good talent base, you've got this terrific platform and you're within a network um, that has got all the products and services that you need to put a group marketing services 
agency together, which is the future of um, where we're all going. And those that offer the group marketing platform well are going to be very successful. Those agencies or even some of the smaller independents that don't have the depth and breadth, um, I, don't, I fear for their future. So um, that was, uh, I guess, looking in and wanting to get, be a part of that and the decision to come into this role and to Starcom. When you look at those uh, you know, three things, in the makeup of um, where Starcom is as a business, it's client base, sorry, four things, it's talent and the, and the network. Um, you've got a terrific recipe to bake a perfect cake, right? And you've obviously also just changed, uh, or changed or introduced a new uh, framework, the, the people powered growth framework. Uh, one of the quotes uh, there, if I'm correct, was saying that through our findings, we know that growth lies in people and by focusing on both the human outcome and business outcome when activating a campaign, it produces better work and consequently more positive personal experience that have 10 times more impact on brand choice. That's a pretty bold statement. Um, can you tell me a bit about the, uh, the research that went into that and uh, how that rollout is going? Yeah, so look, just simply, that was a collaboration with Forrester um, and it was a good research piece that was done in 2019. Um, and, you know, uh, the premise was having a look at, you know, where we sat from the, the, our, our strategic framework, which is the human experience um, and our whole strategic position where we're looking at the tension that exists between what a brand need is, right? So what the client's brand is wanting to achieve and what the customer wants and that tension that sits in between. Because sometimes just because a business wants people to think about it or use it in such a way, whether um, you know people are very different, people are messy, um, we're dynamic, we're in a flexible environment, we will engage in with a product and service in the way that you know suits us. And and so there's always that tension between. So the human experience and the research that Forrester did was to have a look at, well, um, if you get that right, if you go after looking at satisfying the uh, what the human and the, what the customer need is, which ultimately is about reducing um, you know consumer friction points, right? Um, which in again my experience in digital, you learn very quickly um, how uh, intolerant uh, we all are and all consumers are, all customers are, because we're human beings at things that d don't work the way we want it to. And if someone offers us an alternative. Uh, we'll always use that, right? Um, you know, it, it's interesting when you when you think about um, the way that, um, and to give you a few examples, right? If you think about the way streaming works, um, you know, where the Netflixes and the Stands and the Disney Plus, you know, in the analog TV world, you would do these pre-promotions and you would focus so much time on uh, promoting a show and look, this is coming, this is coming. And while pre-promotion is important, um, post-promotion in a streaming world, you've almost got to flip the model because if I see an advert for a bit of content and I go onto Netflix, I expect to be able to watch it immediately, pretty much, right? And so that tension between, well, the brand wants everyone to get awareness and come in in an orderly fashion so that I can hit my forecast and I know how many subscriptions I'm going to have. It, it just doesn't work that way. So you've got to, you've got to flip uh, you, you, your thinking when you, well, you generally need, you should be looking to, um, to, to understand what that human need is. So the, the Forrester research confirmed a lot of what we suspect and what the premise of human experience was all about. Um, and just confirmed that, yeah, if you focus on the human need and then you match it um, and you get that, 
that right integration with what the brand's trying to achieve, then you get a significantly higher uh, uplift in, in terms of engagement from uh, consumers and the success of, of, of a brand. So um, that that is really the answer to, I guess, what, what, what sat behind the research. What we also did as part of that research was look at engaged workforces. And there was a whole bunch of work that was done on, you know, um, you know, the various different criteria that it was involved in what makes an engaged workforce. And they looked across a number of different uh, companies, um, you know, obviously outside our own and just looked at, well, what, um, if we identify an engaged workforce, what's their performance versus their competitive set? And, you know, they found that, um, you know, those within engaged staff um, operated, you know, at about 147% at a, at a higher level in terms of productivity because they're, they're enjoying and loving what they're doing and, and they feel that they're building a career and they've got a future. So uh, what we did then is said, well, okay, the human experience is a great strategic framework, but as a position in the marketplace, it's very difficult um, to try and you get into a lot of discussions around where human experience can go. And it's designed to answer and solve a brief from a client. What it's not designed to do is be a position um, in market that your staff, your clients, and, and just generally people are going to understand and ring fences. So pe people power growth is essentially our inter interpretation. Um, well, one part of it anyway, is our interpretation of um, our HX framework in uh, in, in, in the local market in terms of what we do. So um, ultimately, um, it has sort of three core pillars. And, and one of those is to interpret HX um, in a way that, um, you know, uh, makes sense to everybody. And that ultimately, its main objective is to deliver group marketing services. So bringing together all the different pieces to work on a client brief, which includes that strategic framework in HX, but extends to uh, ensuring that we've got uh, you know, an interconnect, interconnected uh, capability. We've got cross-functionally trained teams that um, can bring together uh, the right people at the right time uh, for the right brief and, uh, and, and, and we can be incredibly efficient and we can improve the quality of our work. So we've, that, sorry, we've yeah, almost run out of time. Um, so it would be remiss of me not to sort of end the conversation on asking you about the, the thoughts for 21 and, We've obviously heard uh, Mike Rebello speaking about the group working closer together and you've spoken uh, before about, you know, finding the, the opportunities and the new revenue streams for agencies as well. How, how are you, Mike, and the rest of the, the publicist group, uh, and obviously Starcom mainly, uh, set to sort of execute a new strategy this year and, and try and uh, build upon what you've already got? Well, look, you know, it's terrific having a leader like Mike who, who sets a, uh, you know, the, the vision on, on, on group marketing services, essentially at the end of the day, that's publicists. Um, Power of One um, is absolutely, uh, you know, uh, implemented across the business and, and uh, across the range of businesses that are operating within publicists. And Mike leads that in such a fantastic way that, you know, we're all trained and taught and, and, and reminded the, you know, of, and, and given the remit, um, to make sure that it's the collective output that we're delivering for our clients, ultimately solve the client um, and, and, and consumer issue first um, and do that with the toolbox that you've got from publicists, right? That's number one. And, and he is just, that's who he is. The, he, that's what, he's such a wonderful advocate for that. So that creates a really exciting landscape of, 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 and, and, a, and a behavior of collaboration across the group. Now, um, to give you some tangible sort of, you know, to answer the question, how well, set, uh, how well set up are we in order to deliver it? Well, we think, you know, and, you know, 
I will certainly from probably from a point of bias, Starcom, we certainly feel that we've got the best position now in order to deliver group marketing services with people power growth, because ultimately it is a collaborative framework. Um, that's what it's set up to do. It's also a, a uh, training and development program. So, um, you know, people power growth has a whole range of, of, and we've launched the HX Academy with the human experience Academy in order to ensure uh, there's accountability around uh, people power growth becoming a training and development program. So that is all around um, cross-functionally operated agency structure and ensuring that we are multi-skilling uh, all our staff. Um, so m m now all of them as of, um, you know, uh, the end of last year are being trained up to have, to be doing dual, dual, dual roles. Um, the, and, and it's, and, it, and, and so, and, and they're close, they're, the, the dual roles are closely aligned. So that there's not someone going in finance trying to do, you know, channel planning or, or, or in channel planning. It's, it's, you've got, uh, someone who's focused on investment is now also learning, um, you know, if they're an investor in the traditional sense, they're learning to do um, investment across digital. They're learning to do in-channel planning on social. So you've got that cross-functional training that's relevant to them and that attracts top talent and that creates better work for our clients. So in order to support um, publicists and Mike's direction, um, people-powered growth is, it's also an internal uh, collaborative um, project management uh, framework that we've launched. So it enables us to work across and bring in multiple agencies with specialisms. As I mentioned earlier, you're scaling up based on client needs. So um, that people power growth position is just such a wonderful framework for activating group marketing services within publicists. And right now we have 60% of our clients um, have either two or more publicist agencies, including ourselves, uh, working on their businesses. Fantastic. Nick, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella cast. And it sounds like something that we'll have to check back in with you on in six months or so and, and see how the, the ball is continued to roll for Starcom and the wider publicist group. Thanks very much for joining us uh, today on the Mumbrella cast. Thanks, Damien. And please do check in. We don't, we don't have all the answers and we've set a, 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 you know, a high benchmark on what we want to achieve. So that, that training and development for multi-skilled staff, um, very keen to be accountable later in the year and uh, we'll, we'll perhaps we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll join you again and we'll get some of our, our staff to, to, to tell how, how they think it's gone. And that's it for this week. But before we go, remember the session submissions are open for Mumbrella 360 2021, which will be running in July in person in Sydney. You have until February 12 to submit any ideas for sessions at Australia's largest media marketing event. And you can check out all the details at mumbrella360.com.au. Be sure to get involved. That is it for this week, though. Thanks, Britt. Thanks, Damo. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, that was my two-year-old who had just oh, who had just decided he was going to visit the at-home studio that we're recording the Mumbrella cast in. Leaving on that note, we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.